Welcome to Over in Smith, an HP Lovecraft, Lovecraft podcast where me and my friend read an HP Lovecraft story and we release a audiobook if it isn't too boring or racist. Uh, with me today is someone who, my name's Jesse, and with me today is someone who uh, seems to uh, be just real weird lately. Faith. What up? Uh, it's all because I got my uh, booster shot. It turns out it just amplifies your weirdness. Yeah. I have not gotten my booster shot because I'm afraid because it might reveal the third gender. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it, is Western world isn't ready for that. <laughs> I know. They're not ready. They're like, damn, if we build everything on a binary, we have to change all of our fucking forms now. I don't have time for that. And this is um part five? Yeah, part five. Uh part five of No, we're part three. No, is it three? We're on three. No, 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 no. This is part five of our recording. Oh. But we're gonna be starting part Sorry. five. Sorry. Yes, you are correct. Yeah. Uh of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Um basically what happened is they were there's this dude who seems to have forgotten everything about modernity and only really thinks about, you know, stuff in the past. Yeah, he. And it's like he's forgotten everybody he knows, no longer interested in the things he was interested in before. Yeah, and they spent the first part being like, well, I heard that he was doing this, and I heard he was doing that. And uh, the person who knows him is just like, well, I heard he was talking about his... uh he he was he was talking about finding the papers of his fucked up uh, great 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 grandfather. Yes, and uh, it happened sometime around that time when he was starting to act weird. And then part two was talking about his fucked up ancestor, who was like real weird. Uh, turns out that everyone hated him, so he <laughs> forcefully married someone uh, that didn't want to marry him, yeah. but he basically blackmailed them it's her father into marrying him yeah she's like 18 uh, and he was like a hundred years old at that point and that's not an exaggeration like it's literally a hundred years old i mean he was just doing that he was just doing the twilight thing. yeah yeah uh and whenever he was uh and after a while like the jilted the the guy who was supposed to marry that girl before this joseph Kerwin, his his grandfather or great great ancestor uh stole her he basically was just like i'm gonna find out everything bad about you and turns out all of the things they were saying about him was yeah, true it turns out uh he was <laughs> i'm gonna find out every bad thing about you oh god there's so much oh no it's exactly what you were it's exactly what everyone's been telling us <laughs> uh and but it turns out uh even a group of what was it like ninety something people? Oh yeah, like a ridiculous amount of uh, soldiers yeah, and yeah. sailors. Yeah, like ninety something people. Like we're going up on his farm. It's just like, yo, we're gonna beat you up. And they had this whole plan, and then it just went to shit immediately because it turns out he was able to summon demons and like make a black, not not black, a uh, like a red fog that just killed people. Like he orbit, like he he did like a meteor strike somehow. It sounded like yeah. <laughs> there, was, 
There were fireballs. um, There was like awesome beams of light. It was wild, y'all. Yeah, and after that happened, everyone who was left was just like, hey, we're gonna just not talk about this ever again. And they actively tried to suppress it. There were some tunnels. There were bright light. Caramel dancing was playing. (laughs) Max volume. I will say that um it was it was a lot like the uh like the second to last episode of the first season of uh Legion <gasps> where Audrey Plaza is being just hot as hell but also the Shadow King yes. um and uh it's just you know wrecking shit yeah. uh yeah now that being said um they didn't do good enough job cuz uh Charles uh I mean Charles Ward he found out so all that effort was for nothing. <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> yeah. Now, that being said, oh, oh, I think I'm going to start today. Uh, I'm just going to start going by art or till- tilling gas today because art. I don't know. Love it. Art or tilling gas. Art tilling gas. I want art tilling gas. It's going to be a first, first name, compound name. I need to come up with a new middle name. But. Or it could be Tilling Gas. I don't know. Part of me kind of want to just go by Tilling Gas. Tilling Gas. But also I like art. I don't know. Whatever. But, <clears throat> but, but yeah, we're uh, now, we now talked about the history of uh, Joseph Kerwin. Joseph Kerwin so, and his fucked up life. So now we're going to just um, talk about other stuff. So let's get started. Part three, a search and an evocation. Chapter one, Charles Ward. As we've seen, first learn in 1918 of his descents from Joseph Kerwin, that he once took an immense interest in everything pertaining to the bygone mystery is not to be wondered at. For every vague rumor that he had heard of Kerwin now became something vital to him, in whom flowed Kerwin's blood. No spirit or imagination, no spirited or imaginative genealogist could have done otherwise, then began forthwith an avid and systematic collection of Kerwin data. In his first dwellings, there was not the slightest attempt at secrecy, so that even Dr. Lehman hesitates to date the youth's madness from a period before the close of 1919. He talked freely with his family, though his mother was not particularly pleased to own an ancestor like Kerwin and with the officials of the various museums and libraries he visited. In applying to private families for records thought to be in their possession, he made no concealment of his object, and shared the somewhat amusing skepticism with which the accounts of the old diarists and leather writers were regarded. He often expressed a keen wonder as to what really taken place a century and a half before at the Paltexic farmhouse, whose site he vainly tried to find, and what Joseph Kerwin really had been. When he came across the Smith Diary and archives and encountered the letter from Jebediah Orne, he decided to visit Salem and look up Kerwin's early activities and connections there, which he did during the Easter vacation of 1919 at the Essex Institute, which was well known to him from former sojourns in the glamorous old town of crumbling Puritan gables and clustered gambrel roofs, and he was very kindly received, and unearthed there a considerable amount of Kerwin data, 
I legitimately don't think we went a single story without uh, gabled or gambled no, roofs. No, it is. If we were to make a Lovecraft um, uh, drinking game, it would, like, besides, like, uh, uh, a racism <laughs> being one of the reasons to take a shot, like, gambled roofs, the word antediluvian. Oh, perfumed water? Perfumed, undulating. Yeah. All those fun Lovecraft Lovecraftisms that he but yeah, Gamble Roofs loves them. They're in everything. Connections with an X. Yeah, which is still so much so much better. Well, yeah, than like how don't we get me wrong, now. I love it, but yeah. Yeah. Um, he found that his ancestor was born in Salem Village, now Danvers, seven miles from town, on the eighteenth of February, sixteen sixty two to 1663 and that he had run away to the sea at the age of 15 not appearing again for nine years when he returned with the speech and dress and manner of a native englishman and settled in salem proper at that time he had little to do with his family but spent most of his hours with the curious books he had brought from europe and the strange chemicals which came from him on ships from England, France, and Holland. Certain trips of his into the country were the objects of much local inquisitiveness and were whisperingly associated with vague rumors of fires on the hills that night. I was hoping when they said that he uh, he ran away to the sea that he just like ran into the ocean and then nine years later he walks out like sopping wet and he's like I'm back <laughs> I walked all the way to England. <laughs> Do you, have you uh? So I know you know down the coast a little bit. Uh, you know you heard about those ends mouthers and stuff. The ends. How, like, you know, how they look like fish? Turns out they're fucking some fish people. Yeah, did y'all know that, like, <laughs> that, like, in, uh, Virginia, they're fucking fishes? It's a thing that's happening right now. It's wild. Um, yeah. please ignore the fish scales all over my pants. No reason <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I'm also immortal now. Uh, oops. Uh, <laughs> and I also have all this gold. Yeah. Oh, don't bite in it. It's not gonna feel like gold. Also, it's gonna taste weird. Anyways, I'm gonna order some chemicals. <laughs> Y'all have fun. <clears throat> Kerwin's only close friends had been one Edward Hutchinson of Salem Village and one Salem Orne of Salem. With these men, he often seen in conference about the common and visits among them were no means infrequent. Hutchinson had a house well out towards the woods, and it was not altogether liked by sensitive people because of the sounds heard there at night. He was said to entertain strange visitors, and the lights seen from his windows were not always of the same color. It's just because he has the rainbow LEDs. You don't have to, like, you know, shame him for yeah, it. Yeah, damn. Just let yeah, him He's a gamer. Let him listen. Come on. <laughs> The most despised class of person, the gamer, is <laughs> so discriminated against. <laughs> this is why I went to England, where we're accepted. <laughs> I heard that they had to make, I heard that the 13th Amendment was all about freeing the gamers. <laughs> 
we weren't even whole people for a while. <laughs> oh, because I love Fortnite. <laughs> the knowledge he displayed concerning long dead persons and long forgotten events was considered distinctly unwholesome, and he disappeared about the time the witchcraft panic began, never to be heard from again. I'm, you know what? I'm just going to say that's a little suspicious. Just a little bit. Yeah. I, I feel like somebody who disappears and are never heard again. A little weird. Well, especially around the time when people are like starting to, you know, weed out weird people. Hmm. In a in a yeah. in a town called Salem? I know. <laughs> so weird. It's a little just a little suspicious. Yeah. At that time Joseph Kerwin also departed. But a settlement in Providence was soon learned of. Simon Orne lived in Salem until 1720, when his failure to grow visibly old began to excite attention. He therefore disappeared, though 30 years later his precise counterpart and self-styled son showed up to claim his property. The claim was allowed on the strength of the documents in Simon Orne's known hands, and Jebediah Orne continued to dwell in Salem until 1771, where certain letters from Providence citizens to the Reverend Thomas Bernard and others brought about his quiet removal to parts unknown. Um, I'm sorry, can you elaborate more on that? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Um, all I know, I mean, like, did, did, did the Reverend just be like, yo, kill this bitch? <laughs> It, uh, dang, it's the old rats in the wall thing. It's like, uh, God told me it's okay to kill your family, so, um... Yeah. yeah I, got a, I got a red permission sh a slip from God. I got it right God. here. Here's his signature. Yeah, God says it's okay to kill this person. Uh, it's, it doesn't happen often. Uh, but he will give you 50 Jesus points if you kill him. <laughs> uh... Which is not enough to get into heaven, but if you try a little bit harder after you get it, you know, you'll be there. Yeah, yeah, it's a good, it's a good bump. <laughs> yeah. Certain documents by and about all these strange characters were available at the Essex Institution, the courthouse and the registry of deeds, which included both harmless commonplaces, such as land titles and bills of sales and furtive fragments of more provincial nature. There were four or five unmistakable allusions to them on Richcraft trial records, as when one Hetzibah Lawson, sworn on July 10th, 1692, at the courts of Oyer and Termiter, under Judge Hawthorne, that forty witches and the black men were wont to meet in the woods behind Mr. Hutchinson's house, and one Amity Howe declared at a session of August 8th before the Judge Jedney that Mr. G. B., or Reverend George Borrow, on the night put ye devil his mark upon Bridget S., Jonathan A., Simon O., Deliverance W., Joseph C., Susan P., Mahitable C. and Deborah B. When there was a catalog, Hutchinson's uncanny library was found after his disappearance, and an unfinished manuscript in his handwriting, couched in a cipher no one could read. Ward had a photostatic copy 
of this manuscript made, and began to work casually on the cipher as soon as it was delivered to him. After the following August, his labors on the cipher became intense and feverish, and there were no reason to believe from his speech and conduct that he hit upon the key before October or November. He never stated, though, whether or not he had succeeded. I like to imagine it's just written backwards, like you just have to hold it up in a mirror. <laughs> now it's it's the it's a pig Latin, but then no one ever thought about that before. <laughs> like, why does everything end in hey, why? Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> what does it mean? I also like to imagine, like, when they say, like, oh, they met behind that dude's house. They're just having a barbecue. <laughs> And yeah, he, this person wasn't happened. invited. Yeah. Hetzibar wasn't mi- invited to the barbecue. It turns out that the 40 witches and the black men that were meeting up were just like the 40 non-racist people and the black men. Yeah. <laughs> and they're having a barbecue. Yeah. yeah. Um, but of the great immediate interest was the Orn material. It took Ward only a short time to prove from identity of penmanship a thing he had already considered established from the text of the letter to Kerwin. Namely, that Simon Orne and his supposed son were one and the same person. <gasps> Prove it. <laughs> well, have they ever been in the same room together? I mean, obviously not. Like, <laughs> As Orne had said to his correspondent, it was hardly safe to live too long in Salem. Hence, he resorted to a 30-year sojourn abroad, and he did not return to claim his land except as a representative of a new generation. Orne had apparently been careful to destroy most of his correspondence, but the citizens who took action in 1771 found and preserved a few letters and papers, which excited their wonder. There were cryptic formula and diagrams and other hands which Ward now either copied with care or had photographed in one extremely mysterious letter in calligraphy that the searcher recognized from items in the registry of deeds as positively Joseph Kerwin's. This Kerwin letter, though undated, as to the year, was evidently not one in answer to which Orne had written the confiscated missive, and from internal evidence Ward had placed it not much later than 1750. It may not be amiss to give the text in full as a sample of the style of one whose history was so dark and terrible. The representative to the address as Simon, but a line, whether drawn by Kerwin or Orne, could not tell, was run through the word. Providence, May 1st. Brother, my honored ancient friend, do respects and earnest wishes to him whom we serve for your eternal power. I am just come upon that which you ought to know concerning the matter of the last extremity and what to do regarding it. I am not disposed to follow you in going away on account of my years, for providence hath not ye sharpness of ye bay in hunting out uncommon and bringing to trial. I am tied up in ships and goods, and could not do as you did. 
besides which my farm in Patuxic hath under it, which you know, and would not wait for my coming back as an other. But I am not unready for hard fortunes, as I have told you, and have long worked upon ye way of getting back after ye last. I last night struck on ye words that bring up Yasathoth, and, save for ye first time, that face spoke of by Ibn Shakabau, and it said, Ye third psalm in ye liber dominatus, holdest ye clodical, with sun in fifth house, Saturn in trine, draw ye pantogram of fire, and say ye ninth verse thrice. This verse repeat each rudimus and hallows you, and hallows eve, and ye thing will breed in ye outside spheres. And of ye seed of old shall one be born who shall look back, though knowing not what he seeks. Yet will this avail nothing if there be no heir, and if the salts, or the way to make the salts, be not ready for his hand, and here I will own. I have not taken needed steps, nor found much. Ye process is plague hard to come near, and it rises up such a sore of specimen. I am hard put to it to get enough, notwithstanding the sailors I have from ye Indies. Ye people about are become curious, but I can stand them off. Ye gentry are worse than the populace, vague, more circumstantial in their accounts, and more believed in what they tell. That parson and Mr. Merritt have talked some. I am fearful, but no thing so far is dangerous. Ye chemical substances are easier of getting, there being two, good chemists in town, Mr. Bowen and Sam Kerwu. I am following out what Borellus saith, and have helped, oh, Abdul Azared in his fourth book. Whatever I get, you shall have. And in ye meanwhile, do not neglect to make use of ye words. I have here given. I have them right. But if you desire to see him, employ the writings on ye piece of that I am putting in this packet. Say ye verses, every rudeness in Hallow's Eve, and if ye line run out not, one shall be in years to come that shall look back, and use what salts or stuff for salts, you shall leave him. Job 14.14 14. I rejoice you are again at Salem, and I hope I may see you not long hence. I have a good stallion, and am thinking of getting a coach. There being one, Mr. Merritt's, in Providence, already, though ye roads are bad. If you are disposed to travel, do not pass me by. From Boston, take ye post road through Dedham, Rentham, and Attenborough. Good taverns being at all these towns. Stop in Mr. Balcombe's in Rentham, and... Where ye beds are finer than Mr. Hatch's, but eat at ye other house, for their cook is better. Turn to Prov by Pawtucket Falls, and ye rode past Mr. Sale's tavern. My house, my house up Mr. Eponetta's Olney's tavern, off ye town street. 
First on ye north side of Olney's court, distance from Boston Stone, about 154 miles. Sir, I am year old and true friend and servant, an Almusen Metrotron, Josephus C., to Mr. Simon Orne, Williams Lane in Salem. So that's confusing, because first of all, they write out all the numbers as Roman numerals. And then V's are written as U's. Yep. Fucking Puritans. This is why this is why they didn't last. Well, I mean, this is why all the people who say that uh we can't change English uh <laughs> because you want to feel special are completely right. We should keep on writing like this. Yeah. In order to, to signal that you want to say an F sound, you should have to put two F's in a row. Two of them. Two of them. Because one F means as a sound. Yeah. What's the point otherwise? I mean, except when you're reading the word about, in which case the U is, is it's just a U. So that's pretty interesting. So um, I like the, uh, and ye seed of old shall be born, who shall look back, though knowing not what he seeks. Hmm. I wonder if that has something to do with Charles Dexter Ward. Well, it probably does, because it probably wouldn't be in the book. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, they probably wouldn't mention it. <laughs> It'd probably be yeah, a little like, superfluous. Uh, the great thing about books is that most of the time, everything inside of them is actually related to the story and not like in real life where just stuff kind of pops up and has no answer. I don't know. Uh, I've read House of Leaves. Yeah, but <laughs> that's also supposed to be part of the book to confuse you. Damn it. So, technically, part of the Fuck. book. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love how they go into a whole paragraph full. Oh, yeah. No, actually, yeah. <laughs> paragraph of being like, don't. Okay, first off, here's where you want to go. You don't want to eat at this place because the food sucks, <laughs> but you want to stay at that place because the beds are better. <laughs> <laughs> and you want to take these roads because all the other roads fucking suck. I'm working <laughs> on it, by the way. Uh, there's only one carriage in town, so, like, it might be a little weird if you show up and one. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, a whole paragraph for directions and where to eat and sleep. It was right after the one where it'd be like, yo, this is what you want to repeat. Hey, this is, and- uh, this is how you, how you, uh, surplant your, um, your consciousness in your uh, ancestor's body. Okay, so like you want to take Wet Them Road. <laughs> uh, you want to stay at this place because their beds are real comfy. This letter, oddly enough, was what first gave Ward the exact location of Kerwin's Providence home. For none of the records encountered up to that time had had been at all specific. The discovery was doubly striking because it indicated. As the newer Kerwin house was built in 1761 on the side of the old, a dilapidated building still standing in Olney Court, and well known to Ward and his antiquarian rambles over Stamper Hills, the place was indeed only a few squares from his own home on the Great Hill higher ground, but now the abode of black family which much esteemed for the occasional washing, house cleaning, and furnished tending services. To find in distant Salem sudden proof of the significance of his familiar rookery and his own family history was a highly impressive thing to Ward. 
and he resolved to explore the place immediately upon his return. The more mystical phrases of the letter, which he took to be some extravagant kind of symbolism, frankly baffled him. And though he noted with a thrill of curiosity that the Bible passage referred to Job 14.14 was a familiar verse. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Chapter 2 Young Ward came to the house in a state of pleasant excitement and spent the following Saturday in a long and exhaustive study of the house in only court. The place now crumbling with age had never been a mansion, but it was a modest two-and-a-half-story wooden house of the familiar Providence colonial type, with plain peaked roof, large central chimney, and artistically carved doorway with rayed fanlight, triangle pediment, and trim doric. It had suffered but little alteration externally, and Ward felt he was gazing upon something very close to the sinister manners of his quest. Um, so I just really like how it's just like, yeah, it's just a modern, you know, just a real modest two and a half story house. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> yeah, just real modest. Fucking rich people. The present inhabitants were known to him, and he had very courteously shown about the interior by old Asha and his stout wife Hannah. There were more changes than the outside indicated, and Ward saw with regret that fully half of the fine scrolled and urn over mantles and shell carved cupboard linings were gone, whilst much of the fine wainscoting and election molding was marked, hacked, and gouged, or covered up altogether with cheap wallpaper. To, to be fair, uh, I think no one disrespected their houses more than, like, the greatest generation oh. and uh, boomers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it's just like, yeah, let's cover that shit up with linoleum and, like, 50 layers of wallpaper. Oh, God. I know, I was I was just watching a TikTok the other day of these people, like, renovating their home, and there is literally probably, like, five layers of just the tackiest wallpapers covering up this one wall. Yeah, I, I had to help take wallpaper off of, like, this 200-year-old house, and it was just so awful. And one of the layers, uh, and one of the, we had to be careful because... Uh, several of the layers had like that, um, the, the green, the, the green, um, coloring that was made with lead. Oh yeah. The really toxic. Yeah. I know exactly yeah. what you're, I can't, it's like made with arsenic basically. Yeah. Arsenic yeah, it was and like lead. Made with arsenic or, yeah, it was just like, no wonder, no wonder the people, no wonder people over 70 get angry at everything. It's because their brains are fucking melted. Oh God. Well, Victorians, like, <laughs> Victorians did a lot of crazy shit. Like, don't get me wrong, but, like, they love the color green, and, like, only arsenic and lead can make the color green. So they put that shit in everything, including their food. <laughs> yeah. They also drank irradiated water, so, like, keep that in mind. Yeah. Uh, it's just, like, so much, so much of our past, uh, 
that we're just like, what the fuck? Why did you do that? Could be explained away with we were drinking lead arsenic and like just putting just like snorting a bestos. Like there's like a really <laughs> famous picture that always gets lumped in with um Civil War like veteran pictures, but he's not a Civil War veteran, is the thing. It's like a guy, he's missing the entirety of his bottom jaw. So his story is, so he was a golfer at the end of the Victorian era. Uh, he was an American who uh, had fallen, like, he had broken his arm at one point and had chronic pain. And was told that, uh, how did they, what did they call it? It was basically irradiated water. He was told it would, like, lessen his pain. So he drank, like, two quarts of it a day. To the point where his entire lower jaw fell off. And his doctor described him in like the last couple months of him living. He was like, his skeleton has become so soft that he now has holes in his skull. <sighs> it's <Damn>. disgusting. <laughs> it's wild. I wouldn't suggest looking it up, the picture up, because it is very upsetting. Um, but yeah, don't drink irradiated water. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't, don't um, do it. Also, I'll also say that a lot of the other stuff that he was uh, describing is very tacky. <laughs> Fine like scroll what? and urn over mantles, shell carved cupboard linings. <laughs> like, I'm not saying like a minimalist or like mid-century modern is like that it should be like the standard, but like... It's, there's so many tacky stuff. It's so funny. So it's, I feel like both those things came back in the 80s in, like, not a good way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can picture both of those things in 80s movie scenes. In general, the survey did not yield as much as Ward had somehow expected. But it did at least... But it was at least exciting to stand within the ancestral walls which housed such a man of horror as Joseph Kerwin. He saw with a thrill that a monogram had been very carefully effaced from the ancient brass knockers. From then until the close of school, Ward spent his time on the photostatic copy of the Hutchinson cipher and the accumulation of local Kerwin data. The former still proved unyielding. But it was the latter that he obtained so much and so many clues to similar data elsewhere that he was ready by July to make a trip to New London and New York to consult old letters whose presence in those places was indicated. This trip was very fruitful for it brought, for it brought him the thinner letters and their terrible description of Paul Tuskett farm raid. And the Nightingale and and the Nightingale and Talbert and the Nightingale and Talbot letters, in which he learnt of the portrait painted on a panel of the Kerwin Library. This manner of the portrait interested him particularly, since he would have given so much to know what Joseph Kerwin looked like. He decided to make a second search of the House of Only Court to see if there might not be some trace of ancient features beneath the pillow coats of ladder paint or layers of moldy wallpaper. Early in August, that search took place, and Ward went carefully over the walls of every room, sizable enough to be by 
any possibility the library of the evil builder. He paid special attention to the large panels of which such overmantles as still remained, and was keenly excited. After about an hour, when on a broad area above the fireplace, in the spacious ground floor, in the spacious ground floor room, he became certain that there that the surface was brought out by the peeling of several coats of paint was sensibly darker than the ordinary exterior paint or the wood beneath it was likely to have been. A few more careful tests with a thin knife, he knew he had come upon an oil portrait of great extent. With truly scholarly restraint, the youth did not risk the damage which an immediate attempt to uncover the hidden picture with the knife might have done, but just retired from the scene of his discovery to enlist expert help. In three days, he returned with an artist of long experience, Dr. Walter C. Dwight. It's near the foot of College Hill, and that accomplished restorer of paintings set to work at once with the proper methods and chemical substances. Old Asha and his wife were duly excited with their strange visitors and were properly reimbursed for this invasion to their domestic hearth. Okay, I was wondering, I was like, did, did Charles just fucking barge into these people's house? And he's like, my dead grandpa lived here and he was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, neat. <laughs> Get the okay. fuck out of our house. <laughs> How glad that, yeah, he's like, here's some money, I'm going to tear the wallpaper off your walls. Also, just to save uh, future people's uh, some some time, you should just get rid of all of the wallpaper and just paint it. Just one color. Just one color. Yeah. It's so much easier. Honestly. Especially in the future. I like, he's basically doing like a kind of like at least in one room like kind of a renovation as day by day the work of restoration progressed charles ward looked on with growing interest on the lines and shades gradually unveiled after their long oblivion dwight had begun at the bottom and hence since the picture was three quarters length one the face did not come out for some time it was, meanwhile, seen that, that the subject was a spare, well-shaped man with dark blue coat, embroidered waistcoat, black satin small clothes, and white silk stockings, seated on a carved chair against the background of a window with wharves and ships beyond. When the head came out, it was observed to bear a neat abnormal wig and to possess a thin, calming, indistinguished face which seemed somehow familiar to both Ward and the artist. Only at that very last did the restorer and his client begin to gasp at astonishment at the details of the lean, pallid visage, and to recognize with a touch of awe and dramatic trick that heredity had played, for it took the final bath of oil and final stroke of the delicate scraper to bring out fully the expression which centuries had hidden, to confront 
the bewildered Charles Dexter Ward, dweller in the past, and his own living features in the countenance of his horrible great-great-great-grandfather. Oh, fuck. You look like the guy everyone hates. <laughs> God oh, no. damn it. <laughs> and as far as we know, like, Charles Dexter Ward is, like, a nice dude. <laughs> yeah, as far as we know, he seemed to be a pretty cool he dude before. He's like, a cool dude. He's interested in history. Like, uh, he kind of lives a privileged life, but, like, he's, he's not, like, really uppity about it. Yeah. Damn. Too bad you look like this asshole. Too bad. Ward brought his parents to see the marvel which he had uncovered and his father at once determined to purchase the painting despite its execution on stationary paneling. The resemblance to the boy, despite an appearance of rather greater age, was marvelous, and it could be seen through some trick of fatism. The physical contours of Joseph Kerwin had found precise duplication after a century and a half. Mrs. Ward's Resemblance to her ancestor was not at all marked, although she could recall relatives who had some of the facial characteristics shared by her son and the bygone Kerwin. She did not relish the discovery and told her husband that he'd better burn the picture instead of bring it home. That there was, she averred, something unwholesome about it, not only intrinsically, but its very resemblance to Charles. Mr. Ward, however, was a practical man of power and affairs, a cotton manufacturer with extensive mills at Riverport, at Potasset Valley, and not one to listen to, feminal, uh, to feminine scruples. The picture impressed him mightily with his likeness to his son, and he believed the boy deserved it as a present. In this opinion, it was needless to say, Charles most heartily concurred, and a few days later, Mr. Ward located the owner of the house, a small, rodent-featured person with a guttural accent, and obtained the whole mantle and overmantle, bearing the picture at a curtly fixed price, which cut short the impending torrent of unctuous haggling. It now remained to take off the paneling and remove it to the Ward house, which provisions were made for it, though, restoration and installation with the electric mock fireplace in Charles' third room study or library. To Charles was left the task of superintending this removal, and on the 28th of August, he accompanied two expert workmen from the Crooker decorating firm to the house and only court, where the mantle and portrait bearing over mantle were detached with great care and precision for transportation in the company motor truck. There was left a space of exposed brick marking the chimney course, and in this young ward observed a cubical recess about a foot square, which must have lain directly behind the head of the portrait. Curious to what such a space might mean or contain, the youth approached and looked within. Finding beneath the deep coatings of dust and soot some loose yellowed papers, a crude thick copybook, and a few moldering textile shreds, which may have formed a ribbon binding the rest together. Blowing away the bulk of the dirt and cinders, he took up the book and looked at the bold inscription on its cover. It was 
in a hand which he learned to recognize at the Essex Institute, proclaimed the volume as the journal of notes of Joseph Kerwin, gentleman of Providence, plantations, late of Salem. I like how they just Ex- yank this fucking wall out, like mantelpiece and all. Yeah, of course. Of course. Of course. And I like how the, the journal uh, that Kerwin uh, wrote in happened to be behind the head, which some would say would sound like it was his brain <gasps> or something. Oh my god. I know. Hold up. Whoa. Pump the brakes. Yeah. Excited beyond measure by his discovery, Ward chewed the books to the two curious workmen behind him. Their testament, their testament is absolute as to the nature and genuineness of the finding, and Dr. Willen relies on them to help establish his theory that the youth was not mad when he began his major eccentricities. All the other papers were likewise in Kerwin's handwriting, and one of them seemed especially portentous because of the inscription, To him who shall come after, and how he may get beyond time, and ye spears. Another was in a cipher, the same word hoped, as Hutchinson's cipher, which had hitherto baffled him. A third, and there was the searcher's rejoice, seemed to be key to the cipher, whilst the fourth and fifth were addressed respectively to Edwin Hutchinson, Armiger, and Jedediah Orne, Esquire, their heir or heirs, or whom representing them. The sixth and last was inscribed, Joseph Kerwin, his life and travels, be in ye years 1678 and 1687, of whither his voyage, where he stayed, whom he saw, and what he learnt. Whomst among thee! Whomst! <laughs> Whomst! <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I guess that was pretty lucky. I guess. Damn, yeah. It's, you know, don't you like it when everything that you wanted is just handed to you? Yeah, that'd be nice. I would yeah. like that, please. Yeah. <laughs> now that that was that was a little bit of a ride of a thing. So it's just like, I mean, what if, what if we just like? Well, I guess it makes sense because sometimes pe- people do hide stuff in walls all the oh, time. Oh yeah, all the time. Yeah, if there's if there's a hollow space, people behind it. Yeah, there's lots of reasons why you have to like pull away a wall or pull up the floorboards or anything like that. It always leaves an empty space, so you might as well put something fun in there. I know exactly, but uh, I just like how the the like the sixth one was just like, "Hey, here's uh, all the answers you wanted, uh, future." person who i definitely won't be taking over yeah uh definitely read these nothing weird will happen well also you'll notice that for every year you age the uh painting (laughs) actually gets older um don't worry you might want to cover that up every sin you commit is reflected on the painting (laughs) so be gay have fun don't look at the painting. <laughs> yeah. uh, I know it's so. tempting, but it's gonna get gross real quick. Okay, I just want to say this real quick because, like, Dorian, Dorian Gray, come on, come on, keep it in your own house. 
Come on. Why would you do that? Put it in another. You're rich. Put it in another country. Oh my god. Or put it in a wall. Problem solved. Oh, even better. Put it in a wall. Put it in a box and cover it in concrete. Never look at it again. It's like <laughs> it's like the <laughs> elephant's foot in Chernobyl. <laughs> Just seal it yeah. in concrete and never look at it again. Yeah, like, dude, like, hey, I, I, I could, I could be as bad or as gay as I want and also live forever. I bet, I better put the thing, the one thing that can kill me, like, in a place where someone could easily just put my face into it. Yeah, like, uh, ooh, it's like somebody could grab this and then trick me into looking at it. God, like, just, just, like, put it in the foundation. Oh, that'd be a good Bear- idea, too. Yeah, no one's gonna look at Come on, Dorian. You could have been alive still, being gay. <sighs> Dorian. <sighs> he was too caught up. He He's like, it's, wait, it's gotta be dramatic. <laughs> well, to be fair, he was really camp. <laughs> he was very camp. He's like, how camp would it be if I just kept this in my basement? <laughs> With just a sheet yeah. over it. <laughs> Like at least put it in a chest or like an armoire. Like I'm, I, if I'm remembering correctly, like he literally just left it in his basement and covered it with like a sheet, like obviously on an easel, like in the middle of a room. <laughs> like oh, I hope nobody notices this spooky portrait. Oh, who could it be of? <sighs> hey, hey, Dorian! I saw th- there's this painting down here. Oh, don't don't bring it up. Oh, I was bringing it up because it looks it looks like your grandfather's. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> that was during gri- dying, by the way, because because his boyfriend brought it upstairs. Yeah, he's like, wait, th- listen, we should hang it up above the mantelpiece. It'll be nice. <laughs> R.I.P. Dorian. Just. I sure hope this. I sure hope the the existence of me doesn't send someone into jail for a decade, <laughs> at least. God damn it! <laughs> oh, Oscar Wilde. Uh, <sighs> chapter three. We have now reached the point from which the more academic school of alienists date Charles Ward's madness. Upon his discovery, the youth had looked immediately at a few of the inner pages of the book and manuscripts and had apparently, and had evidently, seen something which impressed him tremendously. Indeed, in shewing the titles to the workmen, he appeared to guard the text itself with particular care, for which even the antiquarian and genealogical significance of the fine could hardly account. Upon returning home, he broke the news with an almost embarrassed air, as he wished to convey an idea of supreme importance without having to exhibit the evidence itself. He did not even shew the titles to his parents, but simply told them that he found some documents of Joseph Kerwin, that he found some documents in Joseph Kerwin, that he had found some documents in Joseph Kerwin's handwriting, mostly in cipher, would have to be studied carefully before yielding up their true meaning. It is unlikely that he would have shown what he did to the workmen, had it not been for their unconcealed curiosity. As it was, he doubtlessly wished to avoid any display of particular reticence, 
that would increase their discussion of this manner. <laughs> what if he? What if he found also found a porno bag and be like, "No, <gasps> no one can uh, see this." Oh God! <laughs> you can see that on his ankles. <laughs> They're like, "What are you looking at?" He's like, "Dog." It's just some uh, letters from my great 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 grandfather. Nothing else. Nothing else here. Nothing. He definitely didn't get any of those Chinese cartoons. It's definitely like. Not pictures of ladies with uh, their ankles showing. Um, <laughs> that night, Charles Ward went up to his room, reading the newfound book and papers. And when the day came, he did not desist. His meals on his urgent request, when his mother called to see what was amiss, were sent up to him. And in the afternoon, he appeared only briefly. When the men came to install the Kerwin picture and mantelpiece in his study. The next night, he slept in the snatches of his clothes, meanwhile wrestling feverishly with the unraveling of the cipher manuscript. In the morning, his mother saw that he was at work at the photostatic copy of the Hutchinson cipher, which he had frequently shown her before. But in response to her query, he said that the Kerwin key could not be applied to it. That afternoon, he abandoned his work and watched the men fascinatedly as they finished their installation of the picture with its woodwork above a cleverly realistic electric log, setting the mock fireplace and overmantel a little out from the north wall as if a chimney existed, and the boxing on the sides with paneling to match the room and the front panel holding a picture was sawn and hinged to allow cupboard space behind it. After the workman went, he moved his work to the study and sat before it, with his eyes half on the cipher, half on the portrait, which stared back at him like a year-adding century recalling memory. His parents subsequently recalling his conduct at this period gave interesting details, anent the policy of concealment, which he practiced. Before the servants, he seldom hid papers which he might be studying, since he rightly assumed that the Kerwin's antiquate and archaic calligraphy would be too much for them. Okay, that's rude. Uh, why the fuck is- this is, this is why- this is why people talk to servants when they want secrets. Right. Actually, that is how a big part of the, uh, Mexican Revolution went on. Uh, is a bunch of uh, spies would pose as uh, um, what I'm looking for seamstresses and tailors because, like, they would just sit in the same room as the uh, aristocrats, and the aristocrats would pay them no mind and talk about all sorts of fun, juicy secrets, and they would just listen. And the aristocrats yep. thought nothing of it. Well, it's because the poor people are animals. But, yeah, yeah. I, I'm just imagining one of the servants being like, "Why the fuck are all the..." These use why <laughs> with his parents, however, he was more circumspect, and unless the manuscript in question were a cipher or a mere mass of cryptic symbols and unknown ideographs, as that entitled to he who shall come after, etc seemed to be, he would cover it with some convenient paper until his collar parted at night he would keep the papers under lock and key in an antique cabinet of where he also placed them 
whenever he left the room. He soon resumed fairly regular hours and habits, except that his long walks and other outside interests seemed to cease. The opening of school, where he now began his senior year, seemed a great bore to him, and he frequently assured his deferment never to bother with college. He had, he said, important special investigations to make, which would provide him with more avenues towards knowledge and humanities than any university would the world ever boast. Also, at that time, you can just, like, get an apprenticeship doing anything. If you wanted to be a lawyer, you didn't even know, barely, you could barely read. If you just knew a lawyer, you can be like, yo, I'll be your apprentice. And they're like, neat. Uh, show up at eight. You can also just move the town over and say you're a doctor, <laughs> and people will believe you, so. Yeah, I'm a doctor. I've definitely never dug up a dead body. Uh, definitely never tried to bring somebody back from the dead. Uh, just opening up a friendly family practice. <laughs> Naturally, only one who always been more or less studious, eccentric, and solitary could have pursued this course for many days without attracting notice. Ward, however, was constitutionally a scholar and a hermit, hence his parents were less surprised than regretful at the close consignment and secrecy he adopted. At the same time, both his father and mother thought it odd that he would shew them no scrap of his treasure trove, or give any connected account of such data that he deciphered. This residence he explained away as due to a wish to wait until he might announce some connected revelation. But as the weeks passed without further disclosure, there began to grow up between the youth and his family a kind of constraint, intensified in his mother's case by her manifest disapproval of all the Kerwin dwellings. During October, Ward began visiting libraries again, but no longer for the antiquarian matters of his former days. Witchcraft and magic, occultism and demonology, were what he sought now. And when Providence sources proved unfruitful, he would take the train for Boston and tapped the wealth of the great library of Copley Square in the Widener Library at Harvard, or the Zion Research Library in Brookline, where certain rare works on biblical subjects were available. He bought extensively and fitted up whole additional shelves in his study for newly acquired works of on uncanny subjects, which during Christmas holidays he made around of out-of-town trips, including one to Salem to consult certain records of at Essex Institute. Damn, you gotta, you gotta take the train all the way to fucking Boston to summon a demon? Oh, that's, that's why uh, kids it? these days... <laughs> kids these days are so uh, spoiled because they can just pull up the Necronomicon on their phone <laughs> and, you know, do whatever spell they want. Back in my day, I had to take a two-hour train ride just to get Get the right book to summon Abaddon from the ninth circle of hell. In case these days they just pull it up on their cell phone, no problem. Like, Damn. Oh, we have to draw. We have to draw a circle. Oh, well, I can just print it out on this paper, and it's pretty much the same thing. Wait. <laughs> if you if you print out from a printer a magic circle, that's technically drawing. That's it. the same thing. Yeah, it still works. It's the same. Th- 
it would still work. So yeah. Hmm. I'm just gonna uh, 3D print a, a ritual dagger. <laughs> you probably could. Now I want. Now I just want like cyberpunk witches. Oh, that sounds rad as Witch, hell. Witches Shadowrun. Witches Shadowrun. I understand. <laughs> I understand. Sorry, I'm. <laughs> Sorry, I'm. I'm imagining this, but like in our time, it's like okay, who has the nicest printer that's not out of ink? <laughs> You have to print off the you have to print off the uh the ritual circle for tonight. Someone has to print off like thirty sheets so they can uh make the big ritual exactly. circle because they ran out of a uh, sharpie and they only have as a printer. Oh. And the last <laughs> they're trying to capture they're trying to capture a demon in that circle, but like their toner was a little bit off on one of them so there's a line that was out and they could just like slip out because of that they have to pull their (laughs) money to go to like a print shop with a nice like one of those big printers (laughs) oh god oh my god can you imagine someone just getting like a vinyl cut like one of those big vinyl cut things oh hell yeah oh my god it'd be like sounds rad as hell oh man why isn't this brought up this should be brought up more when people are talking about people doing modern day spells. We don't need chalk. Just print it off. Yeah. Just go to your... Or you actually, can... you could just go to your local university's uh, library, because they usually have a print shop that is not too expensive. About the middle of January 1920, there entered Ward's heating an element of triumph, which he could not explain. And he was no more found at work upon Hutchinson's cipher. Instead, he inaugurated a dual policy of chemical research and record scanning, fitting up for the one a library in the unused attic of the house, and for the latter haunting all the sources of vital statistics and providence. Local dealers in drugs and scientific supplies later questioned gave astonishingly queer and meaningless catalogs of the substances and instruments he purchased. But clerks at the State House, the City Hall, and the various libraries agreed as to the definite object of a second interest, who was searching intensely and feverishly for the grave of Joseph Kerwin, from whose slate, slab, and older generation had so wisely blotted the name. Little by little grew upon the Ward family the conviction that something was wrong. Charles had had freaks and changes of minor interest before, but this growing secrecy and absorption was in strange pursuits was unlike him. His schoolwork was the merest pretense. Although he failed in no test, he could be seen that the old application had all vanished. He had other concernments now, and when not in his new laboratory with a score of obsolete alchemical books could be found either poring over old bearer records downtown or glued to his volumes of occult lore in his study, where the startlingly, one almost fancily increasingly, similar features of Joseph Kerwin stared blandly at him from the great overmantle on the north wall. He's just having a hyperfixation. Yeah. He's okay. 
Yeah, he's he's probably has autism or ADHD, and this is what he's interested Listen, in now. Uh, Maybe calm down. One day he'll he'll get into some other weird thing. Don't worry about it. He's gonna get into collecting butterflies soon. Get, get just oh, calm God, down. That'd be so rad. <laughs> Late in March, Ward added to his archive searching a ghoulish series of rambles about the various ancient cemeteries of the cities. The cause appeared later. Well, the p- cause appeared later when it was learned from City Hall clerk they probably found an important clue. His quest had suddenly shifted from the grave of Joseph Kerwin to that Nafali field, and this shift was important when going over the files that he had been over. The investigations actually found a fragmentary record of the Kerwin's burial, which had escaped the general obliteration, and which stated that the curious laden coffin had been inferred ten foot south and five foot west of Nafali Field's grave in Yi, the lack of specified burying ground, and the surviving entry. It was greatly complicated search, and Nefali Field's grave seemed as elusive as that of Kerwin's. But here, no systemic effacement had existed, and one might reasonably be expected to stumble upon the stone itself, even if its records had perished. Hence, in the rambles from which St. John, the former king's churchyard, and the, and the ancient congregational burying ground in the midst of Swan Point Cemetery, were excluded, and other statistics had shown that the only Nafali field, obit 1729, whose graves could have been meant, had been a Baptist. Oh, Nafali field was a person. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ugh. But yeah, we're, we're stopping at that point, mm-hmm. and we will uh, get done with part three uh, in the episode after this. Yeah. But uh but yeah we I am enjoying this uh this I don't know search Yeah this this whatever. part this chapter has been really good so far. A lot has happened though. Um Yeah, a lot has happened but like also it's it's nice that uh the way that everything's unfolding like we knew something happened to Ward. Yes. Then we talked about the person he was trying to find. Yeah. And we talked about Ward himself and his journey. And I did like that yeah. he did develop Ward like he he seems like a nice, smart kid. Yeah, he seemed like a nice, smart kid. Now he's just a weirdo. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. Um, which was which isn't fun. But yeah, I do like like finding the painting. That's pretty rad. That's a fun po- a point. Yeah. Trying to crack a but, cipher. Uh, yeah, but uh, but we're we're not to the point where they're trying to talk to the elder gods yet. No, but so. Yaxagoth has been mentioned. Multiple times. Multiple times. Already. Or Yaxathoth, yes. excuse me. Yaxathoth. Yep. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think we're pretty much done. Yeah, that was a good part. I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad we're moving along. Yeah, I'm glad we I'm are, I'm glad too. the plot is picking up. Yeah, so uh, I guess we're just going to end this. So, um, uh, so, yeah, this has been Over Innsmouth, and you are the... Irreplaceable gash on the fabric of reality. Your keening set of cowl is like no other. It faded from the abyss. The void that would remain would be unfillable, and the mansions of silence would forever fill with our lament. Bye. Bye.